Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Back at the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tom Temin is away. I'm Jared Serbu filling in. Lots of people put a neatly tied ending to their federal careers by retiring on December 31st. Next New Year's Day is a Monday, so you could wake up and have a mimosa, but in the next several weeks, you've got some serious financial planning to do. Details now on that from a happy federal retiree, Abe Grungold, the owner of AG Financial Services. He spoke with Tom Temin. And Abe, I guess let's start with, is December 31st one of those popular dates? Yes, Tom, December 31st is a popular date to retire because you can start the new year in a new tax profile as a retiree. It also helps you with the annual leave that you will receive at the end of the year. And December 31st is an important day because it usually is the last day of a pay period in the year in which you can retire. And that's important to sort of go out in a new pay period so you don't have to have a lag in receiving that first retirement check that you will not receive until February 1st. Right, assuming OPM can figure it out by February 1st, because sometimes it takes a little longer than that too, doesn't it? The final payment would come sometime later, but your interim payment would start February 1st, which is 70% of what you are estimated to get for an annuity. It's funny that they don't start figuring it out three months before you retire (laughs) and they're ready to go when you do retire. Hey, I think I just solved their problem. Tom, there is an excellent reason for that because your retirement does not begin until you have officially left your agency you have to officially walk out the door. And that's when your retirement application is sent to OPM from your agency. Now, as a federal employee, let's say you you have some reservations about retiring. You have until four o'clock on December 31st to change your mind. So there are people that do do that. Got it. Well, when I have reservations on retiring, they'll be for a very good steakhouse, I think. <laughs> Presuming you've gone through the course and you've made your Medicare, all, the, all that jazz you have to select for yourself. But it's not done yet, though, is it? You've got some work to do. Well, Tom, you know, you spent 20 to 30 years in a federal career. You should spend two months on preparing your federal retirement application which is 14 pages long. You should not rush through it. You need to answer every question and you need to gather all the information that's necessary to fill out that document. And it's so important to review something called the EOPF, your official personnel folder that contains every document for your entire federal career. It's important to review all of it. And what is the state of those documents these days? Because if you started a long time ago, stuff might have been on paper. And is it a combination of electronic and paper? Well, some agencies still have the hard copy folder. And 
a lot of agencies have transferred that hard copy folder into an electronic PDF that if your agency has some sort of a sophisticated HR system, you can download your EOPF and to a PDF, and it should be in chronological form from the first day that you applied with your application with the government to the present. And it should really be in chronological form. Now, some agencies may still have the old hard copy, and you should be able to get access to it if necessary. Just to be clear, the EOPF is not a form, but you need that information for the form. The EOPF is all the forms that you have filled out during your federal career, health insurance, life insurance, the actual form itself. It's kept in a folder, and that's what's called your personnel folder. And so that's the, the S- information you need for the SF-3107 then? Yeah. The SF-3107 is the actual application to retire. And if you need to go back historically, the EOPF has that information. But historically, really what you need are all the dates of service for every agency that you have worked for, part-time or full-time during your federal career. We're speaking with Abe Grungold. He is a federal retired manager himself and also owner of AG Financial Services. So if you are starting out in your career and you plan to be around a while, I guess maybe good advice is to make your own copies of everything that's going into that EOPF just in case you would have a backup copy of your own. Certainly, I kept many, many copies of documents that I had filled out during my 36 years in the government. But the best way is to download that EOPF. And I think mine was somewhere around 250 pages of documents that I had filled out in 36 years. And you can go through it. It's really kind of reminiscing through your federal career to go back through those early records, but it will have everything in there and it will help you to fill out your federal retirement application. Now that's one step and the most important step is filling out that SF-3107 and at only 14 pages, it's kind of a piker compared to some of the SF forms, you know, but nevertheless, you got to get the details right. But that's not the only thing you do. What's a good policy for timing of notifying your agency, notifying the government that you would like to retire? Well, I have seen people notify their agency one day and retire at the end of the day. And they still were able to fill out their 14-page application. But the really best way to do it is several months ahead of time because you need to fill out the form. You need to contact your HR department to schedule an appointment. They need to go over it with you. And it's sort of a back and forth to make sure that you have filled out every question correctly. And every person is different. And a lot of the questions depends on certain choices that you make. And those choices can have an effect on you which could be hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars, depending on the decision that you make. So it is important to go over 
each and every question on that form. Yes, if you're calculating, say, your high threes or planning on your high salaries, that could affect your timing, too. Wouldn't you want a full year of getting that high salary? Yes, you definitely want your high three calculated. But what's more important is to calculate every time period that you were working for the government, because that's an important part of the formula. So let's say you have figured out that you have 30 years of federal service, but then let's say you worked one year in the Peace Corps or you worked for a judge in law school and you have forgotten those time periods. Those time periods, if you document them on your federal retirement application, it will increase the value of your annuity. And with respect to having OPM calculate your final annuity, are there common or make sure you avoid types of errors that you can make on that form that could get it hung up in OPM? Yes. Certainly, if you have any gaps in your federal career, so let's say you worked for seven years, you left for a year, and then you came back, they may follow up with you to verify that that actually happened. And another big problem that holds the final payment from OPM is if you have experienced a divorce. And if you have a divorce, you need to have all your paperwork attached to your federal retirement application because you will be owed something possibly to your uh, ex-spouse and OPM make sure that those payments are sent to the ex-spouse. So, yes, you have to have those documents in those attachments. And earlier you said there is that phenomenon of some people deciding as the date approaches they get cold feet, and so they postpone. And what happens if you change your mind? Yes. So let's take the example of someone who's interested in retiring December 31st, and they are really are not sure about that. So there are other dates during the year which are beneficial to federal employees. And let's say they want to work another couple months and they want to go to the end of February or they want to go to the end of July because they're really not sure about retiring. A lot of people can retire at age 57 when they meet their minimum retirement age and then they realize that they don't know what they're going to do with themselves when they do retire. So then they have doubts about retiring. And that's normal. That's normal for anyone. So, yes, you can pull back your retirement application on the last day, December 31st, and say, look, I want to hold off. Yeah, I mean, that's a decision people make. Abe Grungold is a retired federal manager and owner of AG Financial Services. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. And you can hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. 
Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. 
what's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing. Uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. 
and even your title, Chief People Officer. What does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things 
through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.